Greetings and welcome to Creative State, a podcast about arts, culture and heritage in Washington. My name is Karen Hannan, the Executive Director of Arts War, your Washington State Arts Commission. Our mission is to be a catalyst for the arts, advancing the role of the arts in the lives of individuals and communities throughout the state. I am so glad you've joined us to hear about incredible people and their stories across the great state of Washington. And now, on with the show. Hello, I'm Michael Wallenfels, the communications manager for Artswa. Today, you'll hear me in conversation with Spokane Valley Summer Theater Director of Development Marnie Rohrholm, Artswa Community Development Manager Annette Roth, and Tenino Mayor Wayne Fournier. For our final segment, you'll hear Gabriella Smith, our Vets Corps Navigator for the Wellness, Arts, and the Military program, speak to writer, spoken word poet, and Army veteran Michelle Murray. Many of these conversations touch on the relationship between arts, culture, and economic development. You'll hear how the arts and creative activities form a vital engine of Washington's economy, and two important programs, Creative Districts and Building for the Arts, that are designed to help keep what we call the creative economy strong. First, we'll head east to Spokane County to speak with Marnie Rohrholm. Marnie is the Director of Development for Spokane Valley Summer Theater, a 2021 Governor's Arts and Heritage Luminary Award honoree. We spoke about Spokane Valley Summer Theater's commitment to its community and their exciting vision for the future. Welcome, Marnie. If you wouldn't mind, could you please introduce yourself and and tell us a bit about who you are and your role? Yes, I can. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. I'm uh, Dr. Marnie Rohrholm, and I am the Development Director for Spokane Valley Summer Theater, which is soon to become the Spokane Valley Performing Arts Center, a new building here in, in Eastern Washington in the city of Spokane Valley. And at that time, I will become the managing director of the company. So tell us a little bit more about Spokane Valley Summer Theater. How did it start and where is it now? Yes. Um, So the executive artistic director, Yvonne Johnson, had worked in this market in performing arts at a community theater. She then moved to New York for about seven years and she was doing talent management for young people from this area that were going to competitive universities in New York and were trying to break into Broadway. Well, she still had a friend here at the Central Valley School District who said, you know, we don't really use our auditoriums in the high schools during the summers and they seat up to 600 people. And we, she developed this collaborative partnership where we could perform in these wonderful 600 seat high school auditoriums in the summer. And so Spokane Valley Summer Theater was born in 2016 and we're now going into our seventh season. It's the, one of only two professional theaters in the region. The other was, is the Coeur d'Alene Summer Theater, which is in Idaho. And we can't believe it, but even with a pandemic period, we have more than doubled our budget in seven years. There's a huge demand for high quality performing arts. So uh, that's kind of how it started and how it's going. It's amazing to hear. So with all this momentum at your back, how do you see it evolving in the future? Well, um, amazingly, after the 2019 season was our most successful, and at the end of that season, patrons kept coming up to us and saying, when's your next show? And we'd be like, well, next summer, because people have to go to high school here. And uh, an angel donor came to us and said, this is ridiculous. If I buy you the land, would you be willing to build a performing arts center so that you could go year round? And it was always the dream of Yvonne. And she brought me into the project. And so during the COVID pandemic, even though we couldn't stage a season in 2020, it gave us all this time to do market research and to do, to pull our materials together and to go land shopping for this amazing um, piece of land. We will be one of the last undeveloped, we're building on one of the last undeveloped riverfront pieces in the city of Spokane Valley. And it's going to be a, the multi-use is one, a main stage theater for about 500 patrons and a studio black box theater for 200 uh, patrons, but also that's where our theater education conservatory is gonna go. That's for students in grades two through 12, uh, professional theater education. And then there's also an event space for up to 400 on the third floor. So we are 
entering into a major project after all of this success. So super excited about that. That is an amazing glimpse into the future, but let's take a moment and rewind the clock just a little bit. So Spokane Valley Summer Theater won a Governor's Arts and Heritage uh, Luminary Award, and these recognize the artists and cultural organizations who stood as shining lights for their communities during the darkness of the pandemic. So take us back a bit and, and tell us about what Spokane Valley Summer Theater did during that time. Yes. Well, you know, so the pandemic came along and here we are in, you know, we had to cancel our season in 2020, like many other arts organizations across the world. And then in 2021, early in 2021, we had to decide, are we going to try to stage a summer season or not? And remember at that time, you know, the, the vaccine was barely out. Only people over 65 were getting it. Um, there was just a huge amount of uncertainty. Uh, the, here in Washington, the mandate was there was no indoor um, gatherings were not allowed. And what we decided to do is we talked about it at length and we were like, this is not going to be profitable. But the most important thing to do is to pull the community back together. People have been sitting in their homes for a year and a half and they they're really need some cultural uh, exposure and they need to get out and, and see each other again. So we entered a very collaborative agreement with the city of Spokane Valley to perform outside at a beautiful outdoor venue that they had actually just built and also couldn't use because of COVID. And we scheduled two outdoor productions. The ironic thing is then June 30th of that year, the governor lifted the indoor uh, mandate So we were able to move our third production, which was Little House on the Prairie, the musical, which for here was a regional premiere. It had never been seen. We were actually able to pivot in three weeks' time and move that back inside to one of the high schools. And to our surprise, even, it ended up being one of the, or it was the best attended program that we've ever done. I think people were just dying to get out and see a show. Of course, they had to wear masks inside, and and we, we minded all of the state health and mask mandates that summer. But even though it wasn't going to be profitable for us, it was so important to pull the community back together, and boy, did they show up. That's kind of what what we did that year, and and we were really honored to have the governor uh, recognize us for that. I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about community, but first, how did you feel? How did the staff feel when you found out that Spokane Valley Summer Theater was a luminary honoree? Oh, gosh. I mean, we were floored. Of course, we were totally honored. And I mean, I'll be honest, putting on outdoor theater and then having to pivot really fast to bring a a huge professional production indoors was really like pushing a boulder up a hill. It was logistically very difficult. Everybody was exhausted. We were very happy that we did it in the end because the community was so appreciative, but it was a lot of hard work. And then to find out that you were honored statewide in this way was just so validating. So we really were so honored and to share that with the community, it was a huge deal. And, uh, you know, a lot of local theaters around here chose to remain dark all of 2021 as well. And we're just so proud of the fact that we made the effort to reunite the community and, and, and really, really humbled and honored that Arts Washington and that the governor would recognize us in that way. So talk a little bit more about your community. What are some of the important ways that Spokane Valley Summer Theater connects with Spokane Valley? Yes, well, it's amazing. I mean, one of the things is, so now we have seven years under our belt and we have a considerable amount of data on our patrons and on our conservatory students. And one of the funny things actually is, certainly we serve the Spokane Valley, which is a suburb of the city of Spokane, but this whole area, the Spokane County, you know, is, is quite populous. And we found out that we're pulling almost a third of our patrons from outside the city of cities of Spokane and Spokane Valley and 14% from out of state. So really, we realized that our market is from almost Missoula to Moses Lake. And that's a huge rural area outside of, you know, the cities of Spokane and Spokane Valley. And I think that there is very little arts and culture in those rural areas. And so people come from there to, if you will, the big city, I put in quotes, because it's not the biggest city, but they come to, you know, see these fantastic productions. And so definitely, you know, economically, the city of Spokane Valley is over the moon about it because it increases hospitality and increases tourism. And really the the I-90 corridor between the city of Spokane and Coeur d'Alene 
is like the third fastest growing area in the country. And really this whole county needs more arts and culture, professional arts and culture especially. And um, this is a perfect place for it. Uh, we need to, there's a huge market demand is what we found out and we need to meet it. So we're tickled to be in the location that we're in and going forward with this, with this great big project and growing the way we are. Okay, next I've got kind of a, a game for you. I'm going to say a phrase that I heard you say in your Governor's Arts and Heritage okay. acceptance speech, and I want okay. you to tell me a little bit more about what it means. The okay. phrase is, love and light in everything we do. Oh, yes, love and light. So that comes from our Executive Artistic Director, Vaughn Johnson. She signs everything she writes with love and light. And our thank you letters to our patrons and our, you know, everything we sign, we always say love and light. That's sort of a company phrase, love and light. And it means, you know, that we're, that we do put love and light. That's part of our culture. Part of our, our business model even is that we always put love and light into everything we do. And the funny thing is it actually translates into something physical because in this new building that we're building, it is really full of windows and glass and lots of light that was very important to us you know of course theaters revolve around light and lighting and and so we try to spread that love and light not just in our own company and to our own patrons but really to the community to the region and to the state we invite everybody to come and you know partake in this really amazing production quality and you know we're happy to share that so that's kind of where love and light comes from speaking of your new building we're going to be talking with Annette Roth later in this podcast about the Building for the Arts program. This is a program yes. that's uh, put on by the Department of Commerce, and we've been working with them to help get the word out about it across the state. How is Building for the Arts part of your, your process, the, the process of getting this new building up and off the ground for Spokane Valley Summer Theater? Oh, yeah, it's very important. So, you know, the funny thing is it is difficult to build anything in this economy a year ago, the cost of the project was $25.5 million, and then with no change in design whatsoever, we raised about half of that and then scheduled our public announcement. And two weeks before our public announcement, our builder called us in and said it's going to be a little bit more expensive. And the price tag jumped up to $36 million with no change in design whatsoever. And we talked about what to do about that. Do we kick the can down the road? Do we extend the capital campaign? We just decided this is so important for the community and it's so wanted that we should push forward. But really out of that 36 million, a decent chunk of that is going to be government funding at all levels, at um, city, county, state, and federal. And one of the wonderful state grants is Building for the Arts. And I, I was aware of it and reached out you know, a long time ago to get some more information from Commerce. And he said to me, you know, we never have good solid arts projects like this on the east side so please please apply and you know i would say that to our anybody else who's planning arts projects where they where they need capital funding um is to apply for this program which is going to open up uh shortly this summer so do you hear that eastern washington central washington send in your applications <laughs> head to head to <laughs> arts.wa.gov we have a page all about building for the arts um look under the creative districts tab and you'll see it down there so, Marnie, what's coming up next? What is happening next for Spokane Valley Summer Theater? Awesome. Well, thank goodness the world is sort of getting back to normal a little bit. And we are going to schedule full season this year. So in June, we are staging two more seasons. We're going to be in the high schools. I should clarify that. And then in the summer of 24, if the planets align, and by the planets, I mean money, we will be in the new Spokane Valley Performing Arts Center. But for the next two seasons, we'll still be at the high schools and we're um, staging Bridges of Madison County, the musical, which is a uh, regional premiere. And then uh, Disney's Newsies in July and the smash hit comedy Sister Act in August. So that's our season for this year. And then we'll do one more season of three shows like that. Uh, we also will, we have our conservatory, like I said, our theater education wing for the second year in a row sold out by April for the summer sessions. When we get into that new building, that's going to mean that we can expand theater education for students in grades 2 through 12 to year-round. So we're really excited to do that as well. And really right now, it's just, you know, fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. We're going to break ground on this new building in August. And that will really make it real in some people's minds when they see shovels in dirt. So 
we just push ahead to build this amazing thing for our, our community and our region. We're so excited for you to get your hands dirty and get that shovel in the yeah. ground. So <laughs> what, what advice do you have for you know individuals, for people, for organizations, nonprofits who want to use the arts to help their communities? What are some, some thoughts you have for them? You know, for us, we are, we're, we're still a nonprofit, even though we're a, a professionally run theater. But one of the important things, the, one of the important lessons that we learned during COVID and, you know, through the, the Governor's Arts and Heritage Luminary Award was to put the community above profit and sort of, I mean, I, I come from a business background, so I think marketing 101, one of the questions is, who are your customers? And we always keep the greater community in mind and who, who is coming, who wants to come, who would like, who would benefit from seeing these productions, from having their children in uh, professional theater education. How can we give a top quality, you know, experience, a theater experience, patron experience to our patrons? And so I guess my advice would always be you know, keep the greater community and your patrons in mind over profits. Uh, of course, you still have to be able to operate, but, you know, we could make a lot of artistic choices that were just fun for us to do, but it wouldn't be what's best for the community or what they want to see or what they want to experience. So that's kind of, that, that was an important lesson that we learned during COVID. And I mean, we were on the right track in the beginning and said, even though this isn't going to make money, let's do it anyway, even though it's very logistically difficult. And it really paid off in the end, and the community is so grateful. And now, you know, ultimately it's benefited us because now we have all this wonderful public support for this project. So, so that's really the way to go, I think, is always kind of a servant leadery message is, is always to be thinking about your community. Right on. So here's kind of some final questions for you. In your opinion, what do you think makes Washington's art and culture, you know, our, our art and culture up here in the Northwest special and distinct from the rest of the country or even the rest of the world? That is a great question. I, I think Eastern Washington is very strong in um, visual arts and, and some of the other artistic aspects, but we are, we are weak in performing arts. And Washington has such a wonderful, diverse culture from east to west. It's funny, not just, you know, the, the physical landscape. If you ever drive from Spokane to Seattle or back, you know, the way the, the landscape changes is, is crazy. But the, the people are the same way. They're so diverse between the west side and the east side. But that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, the, our service area is really sort of, like I said, uh, you know, go from Moses Lake to Missoula, Montana. And so in this sort of central area, but we have found that there are real performing arts lovers out there. And, and the other thing is that the level of talent is, you know, was never our problem. So when people are like, oh my gosh, you're building a, a professional performing arts venue. And we were like, you know, the intent of this building is to put on production quality of the level of the national touring productions, but produced entirely locally. And, uh, people were like, oh, that's a that's kind of big. And I was like, well, having the talent was never our problem. The talent is so rich here in both, you know, actors and artists and, and technicians and musicians and, and, and all of those people are, that was never going to be the problem. Um, it was just having a, a decent building to perform in. So I love the, like, the, the diversity of the cultures across the state and, and that we're bringing these people, these both artists and arts lovers and patrons out of these corners into this uh, to participate in this project. So Washington is a is a wonderful place. I want us to catch up to our partners in Seattle and King County and Portland and, you know, those larger markets that are so rich and have lots of performing arts venues. And so this is our small way of, of doing that, of, of bringing that wonderful culture to Eastern Washington. Okay, Marnie, where can folks go if they want to learn more about Spokane Valley Summer Theater? Yes, okay, so there's actually uh, Spokane Valley Summer Theater. Our website is svsummertheater.com and theater is spelled with an R-E, like the old English way. But if you'd like to learn more about the Performing Arts Center, it's spokanevalleypac.com. Both of those have links to the other websites. So, you know, if you're more interested in tickets this summer, uh, you want to go to Spokane Valley Summer Theater. And if you're more interested in the building, 
um, you want to go to Spokane Valley Pack, but really ultimately in a couple of years those are going to merge into one and it's all going to be one gigantic company producing year-round not just summertime but also the rest of the year and on multiple stages and with our conservatory and it's going to be wonderful marnie thank you so much for joining us on creative state today it was really a pleasure to have a conversation with you about this oh gosh it was my honor to be asked i'm glad to be here thank you so much Next, we speak to Annette Roth, the Community Development Manager for ArtsWA. Annette manages the award-winning Creative Districts Program, which works to strengthen Washington's creative sector by helping communities turn cultural activities into economic growth. We are here with Annette Roth. Annette, can you introduce yourself for us? Tell us what you do here at the Commission. Sure. Thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, my name is Annette Roth. I'm the Community Development Manager for the Arts Commission, and I run the Creative Districts Program in addition to a few other things as well. So let's start with Creative Districts. Tell us a bit about them. How did the program start, and how did you get involved? Well, a Creative District is a program that helps communities use arts and culture to create jobs, to create investment opportunities, um, and for economic development activities within the community. The program um, started in 2017, so uh, legislation was introduced at the beginning of that year with broad bipartisan support, and Governor Inslee signed it into law in May. I was brought on board in October to launch and run the program. Um, I have a background in economic development, in marketing and communications. I'm a creative myself. You know, I have a background in graphic design as well. And so I was brought on board to synthesize all of those things into um, creating a program that communities could use to benefit them with arts and culture. So if you had to pick just three words to describe what a creative district is, what would they be? The three words I would choose would be vibrant, exciting, and future-oriented. I love them. So let's say I'm a vibrant, future-oriented Washington town or city, and I think I might be ready to become a creative district. How do I go from just being interested to becoming certified? Well, the first step is to contact us. So um, my role is to walk communities through the process from start to finish. I spend a lot of time doing consulting work with them, um, talking with them about what the Creative District program is. Oftentimes what will happen is a person in a community who's related to arts and culture in one way, perhaps they're an arts administrator or an artist, or they work for the economic development community and they heard about this program, they'll contact me and tell us a little bit about their community and what kind of things they have and um, how they think the creative district could benefit them. And we sort of set them on a, a pathway. A lot of times that involves connecting with folks within their community, doing public outreach, bringing together a group of stakeholders so that they can start planning what their creative district looks like. We have a community readiness toolkit that we developed that contains a lot of activities that folks can do either by themselves and bring them to a larger group or they can do them in a group setting. And what those activities do is help them think about uh, what a creative district could look like from a, a very holistic perspective. So it asks about their values, what the mission is of their creative district, what kinds of arts and culture activities they have, what are they missing, what would they like to see, and help them lay out a plan for what they can do. And once they get through that process, they're able to apply. Um, they can get to our application guidelines and the application itself on our website and once the application comes to us we convene a panel of economic development folks arts and culture folks from across the state to come together to take a look at their application the applications are judged only on themselves they're not in comp competition with other communities because we want the communities to be ready to get creative certification when they feel like they're ready for it. And um, once a panel takes a look at it, it goes to the board for ratification, and then we're able to start um, working with the communities as they implement their programs and become creative districts. So I hope that you can help us define a term here. Creative districts, they're part of this system called the creative economy. How would you define that term, the creative economy, and why is it an important idea for Washington? So the creative economy is pretty broad. Um, it encompasses all kinds of, of things such as art and sculpture, theater, dance, music, graphic design, 
web development, software development. There's components for specialty food manufacturers. So for example, distillers or brewers could be part of the creative economy. Ultimately, it's um, people who create things or use their minds to um, solve problems or to create new and exciting things um, for their communities and for the world. It's important in Washington because honestly, it's a huge part of our economy. So the creative economy makes up about 10% of the GDP here in Washington state and employs hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and that's you know across the board in all of those different sectors and more that I mentioned. And so it's important because it's growing. It's a growing part of the economy. Um, it continues to grow. You know, Washington is very much looked at as a as a creative place, um, as a cutting edge kind of place. You know, we have software development companies, web developers, and those kinds of things that help to contribute to that. And so, not only do we have some of those high tech type of creative economy jobs, but we also have the you know more traditional arts and culture sector things that that really provide value intrinsic value to people, right? So, you know, the things that that help their communities grow, that help them to connect with other people, and all of those things work together in tandem. And so we want to make sure that with our Creative Districts program, that communities across the state, regardless of their size or the amount of resources they have, are able to capitalize on those kinds of things so that they can continue to grow their economy and make sure that there's opportunities for folks in the future. Since we're on a podcast, I have to ask, do you think podcasts are part of the creative economy? Yeah, I do think that they are actually. You know, I think that what's one of the cool things about all the technology that we have nowadays is that new things like podcasts are coming up. They didn't exist, what, five, 10 years ago? Not at all. And so um, it's another medium, right? It's another way to connect with folks in the same way that people use TikTok videos or YouTube or television shows, right? They're all part of the media landscape. And so, yeah, definitely podcasts fit within that. All right. Let's keep the thread of economic development going. I know there's another program that you're heavily involved with. So tell us about Building for the Arts. Building for the Arts is a grant program that's actually run by the Department of Commerce. They have been running the program for about 30 years, since the early 90s. And it is a grant program that allows arts and culture organizations to do capital projects for buildings. So things like um, putting an addition on a theater or, you know, starting a new dance theater, for example, those kinds of things. So what our role with Commerce is that we help them to reach out to communities that they might not have access to. You know, at the Arts Commission, we are connected to arts and culture organizations in every single corner of the state. Um, you know, they know who we are. We've done a lot of grant programs and connection and outreach to them. And so um, with the program, our partnership with Commerce allows for there to be more equity so that um, community organizations in rural towns, for example, or under-resourced areas are able to compete in this program. The application is currently open for this coming fiscal biennium. Um, and if folks want to learn about that, they can go to our website, arts.wa.gov, and search for Building for the Arts. Or they could also go to the Department of Commerce's website, which I believe is commerce.wa.gov, and also search for Building for the Arts um, to get a little bit more information about that. Ultimately, what we do is introduce the program to folks and bring them into the pipeline. And then when they're getting closer to applying or they have really strong technical questions, we turn them over to Commerce. And it's been a pretty good partnership so far. This is the first year that we've done it, but our plan is to continue moving things forward. And we've seen a lot of uptick and interest from folks in rural communities who've never been part of the program before because they never heard about it. And so we're really excited about the work that we're doing. Before we wrap it up, let's zoom out a bit. Why invest in arts and culture? Why is that important? Investing in arts and culture is really important in an intrinsic way. You know, I think that arts and culture helps us to be more human. It helps us to think about concepts that maybe we might have a challenge with or helps us to think about problems in a different kind of way, you know, and, and really tap into the humanness of us. You know, when you're talking about it from a more of a business case, as it were, investing in arts and culture is important, obviously, because it's a huge part of the economy, but also because it helps to provide a quality of life in communities, right? So if people live in communities that have a lot of arts and culture, that have a lot of activities that they can do, 
where their kids can take cool classes or they can go and you know to a gallery or meet an artist at the local farmers market it helps them to be more invested in their community and they participate more which makes healthier and stronger communities and so i think arts and culture has a really big important role to play in strengthening our communities across the state couldn't agree more so tell us what's coming up next for creative districts what's going next for your program We have all kinds of stuff happening with the creative districts all the time. One of the things that we like to do is listen to our creative districts, um, help them figure out where they need to go next, what kinds of services and programs we can provide that will help them to take their creative district to the next level. Something that we are working on is doing more marketing and communications around promoting the creative districts. So we're in the process of developing a series of videos describing what the creative district program is and showing vignettes of the creative districts. Uh, We have a creative district convening that we're planning. So annually, um, we try to bring all the creative districts together for a day of learning, for a day of um, sharing stories, and helping them to connect with each other. The past couple of years, we've done them online as a result of COVID, and we're hoping that we can do that in person this year. Additionally, we're looking at some uh, programs such as creating a creative district directory. So um, helping creative districts, you know, get folks to learn about what's happening in their community, who some of the arts and culture folks are. Some of the the projects that we're working on will be finished in this fiscal year, and some of them are going to be going forward into next fiscal year. And so we're constantly evolving the program and making sure that we can get more folks involved. One of the things that's been really interesting is now that people are starting to travel more and and get out there more, and some of the COVID restrictions have been loosened, we have a lot more communities that are ready to go and have really picked up the pace on planning their creative districts. So, you know, we have currently have 12 of them um, that have been certified, and I'm probably working with about seven or eight others that are really moving things forward. So our hope is that we can see maybe up to 20 creative districts within the next couple of years. Folks, you heard it. When you're planning your next vacation, make it to a creative district. Annette, I want to thank you so much for coming on Creative State and telling us about the creative districts and the building for the arts program. It was a real pleasure. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Now we'll head south to Thurston County to speak to Wayne Fournier, the mayor of Tenino, Washington. Tenino became a creative district in May 2020. Mayor Fournier takes us through Tenino's history and how the creative district certification supports Tenino's plans for the years ahead. We are here with Mayor Wayne Fournier from Tenino. Mayor Wayne, can you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, my name is Mayor Wayne Fournier and I uh, represent the city of Tenino. So tell us about Tenino. What do you think sets it apart from other towns and cities in Washington? Tenino is a smaller city. About We have about 2,000 residents that live here. It's located about equidistant between Seattle and Portland, about five to seven minutes off I-5. The city was kind of founded in the late 1800s and incorporated in 1906. For a short period of time, Tenino was the northernmost terminus of the Northern Pacific Railroad. So you'd have a lot of people kind of migrating from, you know, California, San Francisco, and things like that heading north. They'd be going to Seattle to, say, get on boats and then head up to Alaska for, you know, whatever, or head north, parts unknown. They would, ha- they would get off in, uh, in Tenino, and then they would have to take a stagecoach to you know, other parts north of here. So that was kind of where we started out. And then in the late 1880s-ish, some German and Scottish travelers were were heading through the area, and they had a history of stonemasonry back in, you know, in old Europe. And they came to Tenino, and they noticed some sandstone outcroppings in some of the hillsides. And through, you know, whatever devices they had, they determined that the the sandstone in the hillside surrounding the area was of very high quality. And so in the late 1800s, we had a kind of a a boom in industry kind of take hold in Tenino, where we had at one point, I think, four different sandstone quarries that were in operation. And Tenino was was booming and, and we were shipping out sandstone carved from the hillside all over the, the West Coast, building, you know, churches and state buildings. And, you know, you'll find some in Missoula, Montana, San Francisco, Portland. 
all over the place. And it was not just building stone. There was a kind of a very highly skilled segment of the sandstone masons that were called banker masons. They would create the, the more stylistic elements of the buildings. You know, you, you look and you see the, you know, the kind of the floral carvings or the, the grotesque kind of faces. And so, there, you know, artistry and creativity were very much woven into Tenino's DNA from the start of European settlement. So let's come up to today. Tenino became a creative district in May of 2020. What does that designation mean for Tenino? It's formal recognition from the state of Washington that we have uh, something going on here that is, you know, there's a little enclave of, of creative types that are doing things that are interesting. And we're asking that, you know, the, the state recognize that and highlight it and help us build upon and support it. Uh, you know, we are still carving stone. And that, you know, that's a, obviously a creative industry that we're seeking to maintain. And it's actually, a, it's now a, a growing industry in Tenino. So a few years ago, we started up a kind of a stone school and formed a stone guild. And now we have, you know, anywhere from six to 12 stone masons that are practicing their craft and learning the craft. And so we want to seek, we're, we're seeking to preserve our traditional creative industries. And we're also looking to bolster some of the ones that are, you know, maybe less traditional or new to Tenino. And so in our creative district, we've, you know, we have monthly creative arts, open arts fairs that coincide with our farmer's market. And you'll find, you know, things like Native American storytellers, you'll find woodworkers, uh, you'll find people that are making candles and soap from goat milk. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of people that are really kind of flourishing to that. We've been very supportive of like kind of like at home cottage industries for the last 10 years. And we, you know, we encourage that in our community for people to have at home businesses where they're creating things kind of, you know, like the, the Etsy market kind of thing. And we, you know, we want to bring it out of the homes and we want to display it and help people, you know, grow. Uh, the creative kind of segment, market segment for us, it, it's a lot of different things. It's, you know, it's, it's promoting our, our traditional stone carving. It's uh, promoting culinary arts. We have several uh, winemakers and craft breweries that have opened up or have been here for quite a while. And this is a small town. So I think, you know, maybe per capita, we do have quite a few creative uh, folks that are really, really trying to show off what they can do. What do you think these creative businesses, these these creative people, bring to Tenino? What do they What do they do for its for its economy, for its sense of community? The creative base, the creative types, you know, they help us give us our own flair and our own flavor. I think that you know, and, and I don't want to bash on you know greater pop culture, but I I appreciate local flavor and I appreciate local culture, and you know. To me, Tenino represents that in a, in a big way in that, you know, our, our buildings are carved from rocks that were taken out of the hillsides around us. And, you know, things are made out of stone and, you know, it's, it's the most natural, organic kind of building material, material you come up with. And, you know, the rest of the world I see is kind of, you know, maybe a little more plastic, a little more, you know, you see concrete tilt ups everywhere and everything you know, anymore just looks the same, whether you're in Phoenix or you're in Santa Fe or, you know, any, anywhere in America, it's warehouses, it's things like that. In Tenino, we, we don't look anything like that. Our buildings are unique. Our businesses are unique. And we want to promote that flavor. We want to, you know, we want to be something different than anywhere else. And you need creative minds to do that. You need to be able to support local ideas, and, you know, that's diversity. And that, that gives, I believe, you know, when you have creative people creating things locally and keeping it unique and original and coming up with new ideas, that, that diversity, it also strengthens our country, it strengthens our economy, it decentralizes, you know, a lot of the things in the marketplace where you've got these natural forces, you know, where, you know, the Amazons and the Costco's and the Walmarts just suck everything in like a black hole if, if you 
you know, if you're promoting the things that are outside of that kind of nexus, then you're really strengthening the economy and you're helping individuals, not corporations. So from your perspective, a unique perspective as mayor and, and, and someone who seems to know Tonino inside and out, how would you like to see Tonino as a town, as a community evolve in the future? I think we're on a good track. I think we've, you know, we've kind of made sure that this idea of, of supporting local community and building community through collaboration, working together. I, I think if that stays in our DNA like it has, then we'll be on the right track. You know, the, the, the traditional model for economic development where you're trying to recruit a, a box store to come in and open up so they, you know, they create some jobs and they bring in, bring in some commerce. There's a place for that, but I, I don't see a place for it here. And I see it sometimes as, is detrimental. So if we keep that, you know, the, the Mayberry experience, I, I think we'll be on the right track. So also looking ahead, there are other towns and cities across Washington that are actively interested in becoming certified creative districts. As the mayor of a certified creative district community, what advice do you have for other folks that are going after this certification? It's certainly worth working toward. And you know, use it as a way to, to develop your own identity and your own self and your own, you know, your own place. Don't, you know, don't try to recreate what somebody else has done, but find those things that are unique about your community and, and let that lead you. So for folks that are interested in learning more about Tonino or, you know, maybe even paying a visit, where should folks go to learn more? We have, you know, several different Facebook pages and websites. Our Chamber of Commerce the Tenino Area Chamber of Commerce is very involved. We have a very active chamber, and a lot of them are people that are involved in the Creative Arts District. So, you know, we recognize art and, you know, and creative efforts. And they have, you know, inherently they are important, but we also recognize that there's economic value in creative arts and the creative districts. So if you, you know, if you follow our Chamber of Commerce, or you participate in our Chamber of Commerce, you'll see a lot of, uh, thought and mindfulness in how, you know, arts and creativity interplay with our local businesses. First and Economic Development uh, Council is, is, they're as good as it gets. And they've, you know, they have set out in their mission to work on, you know, the creative economy. So, you know, paying attention to what they do and how they're doing that and how they play with the, the state of Washington, I think it would be good. And then, you know, our, our city website, and then come visit. You know, if anybody wants to come and visit during one of our creative arts weekends, uh, they'll, they'll get to see, you know, some of the things that, that, you know, I'm bragging about now. Mayor Fournier, I really want to thank you for coming on Creative State. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about before we let you go? You know, I'm, I'm glad that we signed up. I'm happy that we're a part of this process. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see where it goes in the future. Well, thank you so much. I'll let you get back to what I'm sure is a very busy day. And uh, we look forward to checking in on hearing what Tanino is up to in the future. Awesome. Thank you. To close this episode of Creative State, we'll hear Gabriella Smith, Artsois Vet Corps Navigator for the Wellness, Arts, and the Military Program, in conversation with writer, spoken word poet, and Army veteran, Michelle Murray. Hello and welcome to the Wellness, Arts, and the Military segment on the Creative State Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Smith, the Vet Corps Navigator for the Wellness, Arts, and the Military Department, and today our guest is Michelle Murray. Michelle Murray is a published writer, spoken word poet, and U.S. Army veteran. She is a regular participant with the Veteran Writing Group, the Red Badge Project, and the Veterans Cohort through Path with Art. She also enjoys playing the violin outdoor photography, woodworking, and being in nature. She is truly in the creative state. Hello, Michelle. How are you? I'm great, Gabriella. How are you today? Very well. Thank you for asking. And thank you for joining us today as the second guest speaker for the Wellness, Arts, and the Military segment. We will begin our segment today with your reading of Freedom's Flag. Before you read your short story, can you express in brief summary what this story means to you or why you wrote this story? We had a prompt in the Red Batch class 
of what is freedom. Mm. And I thought about all the things that freedom represents, you know, in society and how we, we view freedom. And I wanted to tell a story that brought it down to its core. And that freedom really comes down to the people, for me anyway, that that freedom comes down to the people in our lives Mm -hmm. and um, those relationships that we have. I see. Well, with that in saying, I will pass the mic over to you for your spoken word short story. Freedom's flag. Jack held the perfectly folded flag between his hands. He stared at the embroidered white stars nestled against the dark blue. He had one just like it in a shadow box lined with medals and service ribbons. A retirement gift for 25 years of service to his nation, a service he was proud of. The flag he gripped, now, belonged to his son. No, that's not right. A memento of sacrifice, Jack thought. He began to think about his 12-year-old grandson, Wesley. Jack stood in the door, braced by the doorway with the flag clutched to his chest. Tears of profound grief streamed down his face and dripped from his chin. Wesley looked up as as he approached his grandfather. Jack swiped at his eyes. He would never forget the expression in his grandson's deep brown eyes that swam in tears yet unspent. He'd placed a hand on the boy's shoulder. Wesley fell into him, gripped him tightly. The flag fell, forgotten, as the pair struggled to make sense of the moment. Wesley's muffled voice floated towards him. Grandpa, what is freedom? He choked back tears as he forced the words out. Why? He couldn't think of anything else to say in that moment. Because they said Daddy died a hero for our freedom and that makes him a hero the same words he himself had told families countless times words he had believed wholeheartedly but now those same words said to his grandson though this time they coated his mouth with bile their sound hollow the meaning behind those words left a meaningless aftertaste he couldn't shake your father is a hero He died to make sure you, your mom, me, and so many other people would always have choices to live our life without fear. That's what freedom is. Wesley accepted his answer and with a small smile released him. Jack picked up the fallen flag and thought about Wesley's question. He always thought freedom was a tangible thing, something you could touch like this flag, his service medals and ribbons or something you were a part of, like being an American. From the outside, he had all those things, and yet he found himself imprisoned by grief. He heard of stories of men who were incarcerated, robbed of their personal freedom, who lived with more freedom in their hearts than he ever experienced. My son didn't die for freedom. He just died. He was a hero, though. That much was certain. Any person willingly placing themselves in harm way so others like Wesley never had to were a hero in his book. Not all heroes have to die, though. Jack turned the flag over in his hands as tears stung his eyes. He screamed with a sudden fury as he threw the flag across the room. It hit the bookshelf and knocked the book down. His entire body shook with rage and deep pain. Why, God, why take my son? No answers came from the surrounding stillness. He hurried across the room to straighten up the mess he made. He picked up the open book to place it back on the shelf. The title said something about leadership and a folded piece of paper fell from the pages as he lifted it. Jack bent over to retrieve the paper. The words written there revealed his son's handwriting. Peace filled Jack's heart. He hadn't known his son possessed such philosophical wisdom. He had never been one to believe in messages from the afterlife. That is until now. Wesley, come here. Wesley entered the room and found his grandfather standing in the middle of it with a smile that shone through his tears. He held up the slip of paper. 
Seems your dad has the answer to your question. The two sat down on the couch and read the note together. Two weeks later, Jack went to visit his grandson and daughter-in-law, Nancy. The flag rested in its shadow box on the mantel. Something drew his eye. He walked closer. His son's note was proudly displayed in the center. Freedom is a state of being, a feeling, not a thing. It's like God. You can't see it, but like faith, you feel it. No one can define it for you. Only you can do that. Freedom is a dream we strive for, a precious and precarious thing for sure, but something worth fighting for, worth dying for. It is something we must protect and hold close because it is a gift. Some will try to steal it because they think it can be owned. They don't realize it is a gift that is given, first to self, then to everything and one around you. Freedom is a living feeling. Every time I look at my son, I realize how precious it is. Jack gripped the mantle with both hands as his shoulders shook. He didn't try to stop the sobs. The pride and grief he felt for his son washed some of the pain away. Wesley and Nancy joined him. They wrapped their arms around each other and wept and honored their hero with tears born from love. Thank you for that reading, Michelle. Oh, oh you're very welcome. Oh, it brought some emotions to me as well um, because I do agree with the idea of freedom being a living feeling and that it can change in a very um, split second if something new were to occur to my own family members or to people I knew. And I could almost visualize the moment when my father returned home from Iraq, where me, my mother, and many families waited in a large convention center with the American flag hanging above that door where the soldiers would walk out of and it stood large and sturdy, and I saw it as a sign of bravery, but your, show, your poem showed me the delicacy of our flag and freedom. When you look at it through the lens of a child, it becomes something precious and precarious, just like you mentioned. And for it to be something worth dying for, I could not show anything less than gratitude from this. Your story made me thankful for our veterans, spouses, children, families, and so forth. So I do want to take a moment to thank you for your time and service and your willingness to speak upon this very in-depth topic. So was it specifically your time and service from 1988 to 1992 that completed your perspective of freedom? Or did the writing of this story and other red badge assignments provide a new perspective? When I joined the military, I was, by all accounts, though technically an adult, still a child. <laughs> I was all of 17. And um, so my idea of what freedom was, was um, very macroscopic, mm. you know, country, duty, honor, and, and, and all of that. But it's really been more the evolution since that time that mm. has helped me to define what freedom is. Mm. Um, and I, I see that freedom has, it, it's, it's really easy to just, you know, say all those things about freedom and that, you know, it's the flag and, and this and that. But when you still, when you really start to think about what freedom means, in your life, it is those little things right. that that bring us that freedom. And I think during the pandemic, if nothing else, the pandemic certainly highlighted what freedom is yeah. for many people. And you know, whether you agree with another person's definition of freedom or or not, doesn't really matter. It's every everybody has their own individual feeling of freedom and that's why I wrote that it was a living feeling because we all experience that freedom differently right. and as you mentioned so eloquently we experience it differently at different times in our lives 
And so for me, freedom is something that's always evolving. And I'm grateful to live in a country where freedom um, is so is so precious. Right. And, um, you know, at the at the top of everything we do as a country Mm -hmm. and that we have the opportunities as citizens to be able to express our individual freedoms. Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about the Red Badge Project and how their workshops are assigned? Yes, the Red Badge Project is a group that started some time ago with Tom Skerritt and Warren Etheridge that wanted to bring um, the, the art of writing to veterans to give them a platform to tell their own stories because they were both aware of how poignant and important um, it was to to offer veterans this um, avenue of expression. And so I got involved through uh, Path with Art and I believe um, Hugo House is another uh, place where Veterans will take a class with Hugo through Hugo House or Path with Art for Red Badge 101, mm-hmm. which introduces the veteran to the program and um, the format. And they spend eight weeks learning about writing in the fashion that we do in, in the group. And um, then once the class is over, they'll be invited to a weekly Red Badge group. Mm-hmm. And uh, we come together every week and we, we we get a prompt like the one I did for Freedom's Flag. And we have a week to write that story and then we share it in class with each other um, and we get feedback. And it's just really nice to be in such a supportive community because we can really, since we're all veterans, we can really share those deep personal stories that we can't share anywhere else because of the fears of judgment or... Um, that people won't understand because you're in a group of people that do. And um, some of the stories that have come out in these classes have just been some of the most amazing and raw and emotional and beautiful stories I've ever heard. Right. Spoken word poetry or stories, in my opinion, are powerful in its own right because, just like you mentioned, the audience is actively listening to the poet as well as bringing a sense of engagement between the reader and the writer. So when you're speaking on behalf of your stories, the veterans themselves are listening to a new perspective of someone who has been in a similar situation as their own. Just the other day, I spoke with Ashley McBunch, the Poet Laureate of Olympia, who stated that they specifically listened to spoken word poetry during their first deployment through a Walkman. And I could almost picture them with the headphones on, releasing themselves from perhaps an unknown surrounding or situation during that long flight to their destination and diving deeper into the words of Bridget Gray, the spoken word poet that they resounded with. Your words and many more, I believe, can be used to amplify the experiences that many cannot speak upon themselves. It's why I wanted you to read not just a portion of the story, but the whole. Your words, and many more, I believe, can be used to amplify the experiences that many cannot speak upon themselves. And that's really why I wanted you to read not only just a portion of your story, but the whole story. Because the way you articulated it with the actual sounds of what the child might feel versus the grandfather, I could, I could emotionally understand that through your articulation. So was it the Red Badge Project or the spoken word poetry class with Samuel Corrales that you completed where you had to exercise pictures or a house within your head to visualize your inner thoughts and the truths? Um, That would have been my spoken word poetry class with Samuel Corrales. Oh, I see. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how that experience made you um, understand your inner thoughts a little bit better? Um, yes. He, um, in this uh, Path with Art class, um, we were going to construct a spoken word poem, and I'd never written one before. 
and I would never have called myself a poet prior to this. <laughs> and um, we, he, he had us, you know, make a room in our mind. And then he had us divide a piece of paper into like, I believe nine, nine blocks. And each was a part of what would be in a room. Like, you know, maybe the first block was about the walls and the floor and the ceiling. Mm-hmm. What do they look like? And really just stepping into the, the, it's about stepping into the scene and seeing the, what it physically looks like. But then once the room is all constructed and you filled it with the furniture and you brought in all these other elements, then you started to attach meaning to these different elements. You know, what's the importance of a wall? You know, some could say it's to shut somebody out or to or others could say it's to give form. You know, it's whatever you choose for your interpretation to be of what that wall represents. And then you take these representations and you create a story or a poem from these representations. And for me, that was just such a different way of thinking about story and poetry and allowed me to open up a different part of my voice in art. And I am so grateful for that. That is wonderful. Now, Path with Arts specifically is an organization built around community efforts as well as cohort classes like you just mentioned. Can you tell us how Path with Arts has helped you engage with your community? Well, um, yeah, I might get a little emotional on this. Um, Path with Art has been integral to my healing. Mm. Um, Without them, I wouldn't be, I know I would not be where I'm at today. You know, like so many veterans, um, I have uh, PTSD, Mm. and that causes me to self-isolate from people. And prior to the pandemic, I was socially isolated for almost 10 years. And um, when the pandemic occurred, you know, the VA was, was very concerned about veterans not having access to a lot of the things they had access to before. And that's how I found out about Path with Art. And I got involved with Path with Art and Gatra Gonzalez, who is the um, uh, the uh, veteran liaison, mm-hmm. um, reached out to me and helped connect me to some other organizations um, and read, you know, like Red Badge. And it was just so wonderful that to be brought into this community and to be given not only this community but access to these art classes because I wasn't really ready to engage with people per se (laughs) (laughs) but being able to be in the class and taking these classes and having a way to express myself artistically and just to be able to go do something instead of just you know what I normally did was which is basically not much Mm -hmm. Um, and then sharing this art with the other veterans in the class, you know, naturally we, we just started talking and I have some beautiful friendships now. Um, and I've got this, you know, writing career in front of me and I just have, there's just not enough good I can say about Path with Art. They truly do care about veterans. They are so invested in ensuring not only that we have classes, but that they're quality classes and that, they want to hear what veterans need, what veterans want, and really go out of their way to um, provide us an opportunity to come together and express ourselves in an artistic way and share that with our community. Thank you so much for that. I know that was emotional, but to hear you talk so, you know, well about Path of the Arts, I know that it's going to amplify that to the community here and maybe bring others in as well, which is what we are all hoping for. So are there any ways that you know of in which people can take part in Path with Art? To get involved with Path with Art, all you have to do is go to pwa.org and under community uh, uh, participant resources, there's a link for the veterans cohort as well as the regular um, cohort. Now, veterans can take classes in the veteran cohort or just in the general uh, classes that are available. 
um, and you just fill out the information and you pick the Veterans Administration um, as your source and they will get you set up. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And thank you again for your time today, Michelle, to speak on oh, behalf thanks for having me. Yes, of Freedom's Flag and so forth. So it was wonderful to talk to you today. And we hope that we will still engage with you in other avenues in the future. But again, thank you for your time today. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Gabriella. I look forward to it as well. Thank you. And you have a wonderful day, Michelle. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Creative State. I hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as we enjoyed putting them together. You can learn more about the work that we do at arts.wa.gov. Thank you again, and I hope your days are full of creativity and discovery.